Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the best new host and podcast show, the Calling a Man's Answer Show, live every week. Remember, if you have not already, subscribe to me on your favorite streaming platform so you guys can support the show. This is episode 56 with Teddy Payne. He's a historian from the Phoenix metropolitan area. He is also a history educator and someone who provides knowledge to the general public. He has current courses on ancient Rome with new posts Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on Instagram at History with Ted. Take a listen. All right, man. Welcome to the Calling a Man's Answers show. This is episode 56, so thank you for being here. Um, just go ahead to start, you know, introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, things like that. Okay, I'm uh, Teddy Payne. I am a local uh, teacher historian from the uh, area, um, Metro Phoenix area in Arizona. Um, I'm a former vet. Um, I'm half uh, American, half Bahamian. My mom, she's from the Bahamas, and I spent a lot of my childhood in the Bahamas. I, uh, I run a, I guess you could call it a blog on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where I discuss historical topics. Uh, I've been doing it since, uh, seriously, since 2017. I started in 2016, but it was just sort of like random one-off topics. I was just picking a historical figure or event that interested me. And then in 2017, I got really serious about it. And I started to just do full-on courses. I did um, a full course on U.S. history, on world history. Um, recently completed a course on the history of ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt. And right now I am wrapping up the first leg of what is going to be a very long and for me, exhaust this history on ancient Rome. I'm going, and, and it's very audacious. I'm, I'm actually pretty, pretty proud of it. I'm going from the, the founding. We, uh, we estimate that ancient Rome, that the first um, settlement, uh, the first actual human interactions around what will become the city of Rome began around 10,000 years ago. Um, and I'm going from, well, not 10,000, yeah, yeah, roughly, roughly 10,000 years ago. Um, I'm going from that point up to 1454 uh, when the city of Constantinople fell. So it's a very long history. It's a very broad history and kind of controversial because most people don't call the fall of Constantinople the Byzantine Empire. They don't count that in with the history of Rome. But uh, at least for me, because the Eastern emperors did still exert influence after the fall of the West on the people living in the West, especially the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm including it. Um, an interesting fact that uh, that most people don't know, or in some historians don't like to acknowledge, is that okay. So uh, Constantinople, um, the emperors in Constantinople, they actually exerted great influence on the western, the former western provinces after the after the barbarian tribes took uh, carved up the western provinces into what would become the nascent kingdoms of England, France, Germany, um, and uh, and Spain. The, the popes, uh, the, the Catholic Church as an institution, they were still pretty much under the thumb of the emperors in Constantinople. And a lot of people, uh, they, it, it, had to do, it had a lot to do with just um, cultural uh, spheres, you know, um, but a lot of people don't like to include the history of the Eastern Roman Empire after the reign of the Emperor Justinian in with Roman history. Um, so it's a bit controversial in that respect to keep the history of Rome going until the fall of Constantinople. But uh, I, I, I've always viewed it as just being one long shot. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the city of Rome itself um, 
the city of Rome itself, uh, every, uh, with, with, Con- with Constantine the Great's move to uh, Constantinople, the city of Rome itself pretty much lost its influence on the empire. The, the emperors in the West, as a matter of fact, when, when the Western Empire did finally fall, they weren't even in residence in Rome. They were actually living in Ravenna, the city of Ravenna in Italy. They, they complete, the city were completely abandoned. Um, a few senators made the city home, but all the, the military elite, the economic elite, and the political elite, they were all living in Ravenna. So, uh, so I, 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 it, it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a wrong, rambling historian's answer for it, but I'm, I'm including everything, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. Dude, I am so fascinated by history. Um, one, I'm really, really, really fascinated with just the world history in general, but two main particular, I'm a politics and government and philosophy minor, so I'm yeah. really interested in um, – <clears throat> like U.S. history and what I'm writing my thesis on is actually um, the how the Marxist doctrine played an influence of the degeneration of the Soviet Union and whether or not it was the influences and innovations of Lenin and Stalin that created the Soviet Union and, and the corruption and the atrocities or if it was inherent in the Marxist doctrine. So that's what I'm writing my thesis on. But yeah, dude, what you're talking about and how you're just going through it, history fascinates me. How did you get into history? Was it always something that fascinated you? Was it something after you said you were a vet? Did you find it while you were serving your time? How did you get into this fascination of history and becoming a historian and teaching that? I was, um, I would say I was always fascinated with history. You know, the stories of the past always, uh, it was always my favorite subject in school. It was always something that I would gravitate towards uh i would i would always you know uh pick up a book on the history of a nation or a good biography before anything else um i it was i've always gravitated toward i was always fascinated with with the uh the reasons and the explanation for the rise to greatness yeah man history is is fascinating because it's kind of like the not that it like it is what humans are, but it kind of describes what a human being is through the past, you know, through what old societies did, how we became sophisticated. You know, what is your favorite time period topic to study? I know you're studying ancient Rome right now. Is it all fascinating? Um, is, is, but is there a specific time period that you're just fascinated with? Oh, it's, um, it is definitely ancient. history, definitely antiquity. I think that we, we sort of brush it off and just think that happened long ago and it doesn't really have much influence on our lives. But literally everything that we do is a reflection of what those people did. And I mean, even with the literature, I mean, um, talking about just what history means and, and what our society, our civilizations mean. Um, I don't know if you ever read um, uh, The Epic of Gilgamesh, right? But the Epic of Gilgamesh comes across as just being a tale, just a written story, but there's a deeper philosophical message to it. Gilgamesh goes through life, he, and, and, and this Gilgamesh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a pretty famous guy already within his, within his city, uh, but he goes out. He has these wonderful adventures. He, he, uh, he battles a wild man, becomes uh, Enkidu. He becomes good friends with Enkidu. Enkidu uh, died from a wasting illness, and he goes on this epic mission to try to to try to find something to bring Enkidu back. And he fails in the mission. He's walking back to he's walking back to his city. By this time, an old man, and he's thinking about all the adventures he had and how no one is going to remember him and what his, his personal legacy is going to be. What the legacy of his of uh of his people is going to be. And he and as he's walking. 
the city looms far off in the distance. It looms at this little speck, and has he, has he, has, uh, has he completes a journey, as he gets closer, as he gets closer to home, the city appears. He sees the walls. He sees the people. He sees the marketplaces. He's struck by the awe that his legacy and that the legacy of his society is his city. You know, and, and it, it still strikes us because whenever you look at archaeological ruins and so forth, I'm, I'm always struck by just how similar everything is you know it's not like it's not like you go to a ruin and you think there's a pretty alien you go to you go to ruins and you see homes you see um public spaces you see these great monuments that that these people created to attest a moment in time um it it's like two thousand years from now somebody stumbling across a city like new york or chicago they would be struck by the skyscrapers, you know, the, the skyscraper will sort of be like uh, the pyramids. You know, you go to Egypt and you see the pyramids and you wonder how these people could simply muster their energies and so forth to create a structure. Uh, you go to um, the, the Colosseum, you go to the Flavian Amphitheater, and you're struck by this concrete building that is still standing the test of time. Um, it's, it, you, you can still, the Italian government would never allow it, but you can still go there and put on the public games and the spectacles that Roman emperors did at the Flavian Amphitheater. It is still standing. Um, you go, you go to, uh, what's the site? Um, what's the site? Uh, it's, it's escaping me. Um, it's, Uh damn. Okay, well I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, you're, you're... Um but but I'll, but I'll pick it up with something else. Um Hammurabi's law code, mm -hmm. right? It's it's this amazing document, right? And it's more than just carved stila. It it goes in depth into contract law. You know, the Babylonians are are describing concepts that we still hold true to to this day. You know, if you create a if you build a house, you just can't throw together any any structure. You know, you have to make sure that it's sound and it's safe for habitation. Now, the Code of Hammurabi is very draconian in that, you know, if you build a house and the house collapses and kills somebody, they're going to kill your, uh, someone in your family, you have to balance things out. But, mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, we'll simply give you a fine, maybe a prison sentence. But 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 the uh, the effect of the law is still there to where if you're going to create a house or if you're going to enter into a contract with somebody, you have to make sure that it's sound. You have to make sure that it is habitable. You have to make sure that um, that you're paying people decent wages. You have to make sure that you are are not just putting flimsy products out there for people to buy. There's there there are going to be consequences for your actions in our society. You know mm -hmm. it's. It's that great legacy, but it's definitely ancient history. Um, it, it's it's awesome. Well, one thing about ancient history too is, at some point, you know that we have been—I don't know—they think we've been a species for hundreds of thousands of years, like the modern human. And then you could some can go back to like a million, almost to like almost a kind of when we first started as a Homo sapien. But at some point, 
we began to write. And that's kind of the, the takeoff of the study of, of history and the study of, oh, yeah. of before and learning off is when we got that ability to write. And, you know, there was hieroglyphics and things like that. But that ability to document what was happening, I think that was one of the most influential uh, points of history. Do you agree? Do you think that when we started to write, that's when we really started to understand what was happening in the past and learning from it? Oh, yeah. And, and it goes beyond even just writing. I mean, writing was great. Uh, writing, writing is great. Because writing tells us what the elites were thinking, at least, and what the the heads of the society wanted to to pass down. You know, um, uh, you know, you think of, uh, and, and it's funny. Um, most uh, most of us believe that writing came about simply as a way to for uh, for accountants to keep track of economic progress and temples to keep track of donations to the temples. Um, the first wars were not over um, territory or even dominating other people, but the first war sprang about be- over trade routes. You know, again, yeah. we're going back to uh, this, uh, this accounting for what, what we're exchanging, what we're gaining and what the temples are receiving. But you go beyond writing and you go back to cave paintings, you know, uh, from, from cave paintings, we found that animals that we never would have uh, associated with with different regions lived there. You know, you look at cave paintings in France or North Africa, and you will see cheetahs and elephants and uh, gazelle. And you know, now North Africa is mostly a desert, so it's it, it um it it's a harsh. Uh, well, not even I wouldn't say a harsh, but it's a stark reminder of how things change and and what our forebears the the environment that they lived in. You know, you uh, the 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 cave paintings of France. You see tigers and lions. You see like you know ar- archaic animals like that who lived there, and you see the people hunting them and so forth. So it's 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 amazing to see that progression again. We're going back to this long arc of humanity and. And, you know, just the indomitable spirit of human societies to adapt to their local surroundings. And again, um, you know, even more contemporary for a long time, most people thought that the Vikings, um, the Scandinavians never made it to North America. And then lo and behold, we find not just Viking towns, a Viking town at at uh, Leanso Meadow, but we also find writings. You know, we find ruined stones. Where is um, that city, Leon? That- Oh, it's not even, it's, it's, a, it's a small, it was, it was not a small village, but it was a village, but it's in Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, they made it, they made it all the way there. Um, and, and, and writing, is, and, you know, this is sort of like the, um, the, the uh, I guess, uh, the, the fall off with writing and with, with ruins is that they can tell us the people were there, but they can't tell us really what they were thinking and why they left. So at Leonso Meadow, there's no signs of destruction, but the site was abandoned, and we don't know why it was abandoned. You know, um, the the local native peoples of uh, of the area they have no um, oral traditions of, of of Scandinavians making it there. There's no um, there, there's no like burning. There's no uh, burn marks on any of the buildings, and there's no like rune stone or anything like that saying why they left. You know. Yeah. Um, I think you brought up something important too. We didn't, we don't know what they were thinking, you know, to go on. I'm like I said, I was a, I'm a philosophy minor, but to go into um, a little bit of philosophy, you know, I think another one of the most important points in history was Immanuel Kant. And I'm pretty sure it was Immanuel Kant. And I think therefore I am, you know, realizing that we are these beings that are conscious and that, that distinguishes us between 
you know, the other species that are on planet earth. I think it is fascinating that you can look back and see ruins and things like that. And we have this almost bias to think that they were just like us. You know, they did think they did love, they did come together as a society. They, we are a societal animal, a society, societal breed. And so I think we do have this almost, um, personistic bias to look at the past and say those people were like us but we ne will never know exactly if they were or if they were conscious or if they were exactly like us you know yeah um and, and that's a great point uh and again this is so, this is an area where writing filled in some of the blanks but it also um leaves us wanting more so with ancient rome right i, I would say that of all the the states of the past of antiquity ancient romance received the most um, attention. Um, and and, and it, it's pretty much the driving force for the, main, for, the, for the modern world. Just about every country, every nation, every society has something, whether they like it or not, from ancient Rome. The, some aspect of their government or their society, their culture is derived from it. Um, but with ancient Rome, it's estimated that less than 5% of all the literature, all of the written works survive. You know, yeah. and, and it, it, that number drops even lower when you think of the Greeks. I mean, most people think Greek statues are amazing, but the majority of our Greek statues and Greek artworks are Roman reproductions. You know, we have very few actual Greek statues still still standing, still still uh, still around. Most of them are copies from the Romans. Um, and, and to their credit, the Romans became very good at copying those Greek statues. So, um, it, so, so we have uh, accurate descriptions of uh, accurate, I should say, reproductions of what those statues look like. But even with Greek, uh, with Greek literature, not not much of it. More than I would say, ninety nine percent of it is it's gone. And, and with Egypt, for a society as long lived as Egypt. I would estimate um, that less than 1% of, of all their literature survives. We, we have fragments of many papyri. And I think, I, I think even now, you know, when you look at it, Egypt, um, Narma unified Egypt around 3100 BCE. And from that point on, I would say we have less than 100,000 pieces of papyri. You know, you're looking at a society that, that ran the gamut of 3,000 years, right? And we have less than 100,000 pieces of papyri. And most of those papyri are copies of the exact same thing. Um, and, and it falls off even worse when we look at societies in, let's say, Babylon or, or the Hittites or Sumer and Akkad, right? We have very, very few documents from those people, from those societies. We have basically no, no, uh, no paper or wooden artifacts from them what we have are are uh chipped fragments of like clay tablets right and 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 uh and they they can they can give very very good insight into their thoughts and their attitudes um we found uh in in egypt in kemet a wonderful trove of mortuary um mortuary papyri mortuary records and it gave us great insight into exactly how uh, the people, how, how those two mortuary families um, conducted business, the services they provided to, to the local people. You know, um, most people will think that everybody got the type of, um, everybody got the type of uh, mummification treatment that like a pharaoh got. And that, that's good when you're looking at the surface, but as an historian, you look at it and you say, well, well, Ramses the Great uh, was a pretty egotistical guy, 
Uh, we call him the great chiseler. There's no way he's going to go through the same mummification treatment that Joe Blow went through. So, so mm, let, 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 let's further examine this. And, mm-hmm. well, and, and, and examining those more trade records, we see that they had a sliding scale for the services they would provide for people. Um, we, we see that, the, that they divided the town between them, the only two families. Uh, they didn't divide it saying that you take this part, uh, you take these families, we'll take these families. They simply drew a line in the town. And if you died on the west side, we, uh, we have you. If you died on the east side, they have you. Um, they would, to, to keep track of, uh, of, uh, of their customers, they would put toe tags on them. You know, like how we keep track of people in work with toe tags. They were put in the information uh, that way. Um, we found out just how long the process actually took. Um, we found, um, we don't know the, the full scale, the, the full um, uh, rundown of how they prepared the bodies and stuff. But we gained a lot of insight into the time that it took and the, the methods and the, the products that they used to mummify. Uh, and, and going beyond that, I mean... There, there's one, and, and and this is controversial too because most people they uh, they draw a line when it comes to philosophy and they say that what ancient societies, the only two societies that did philosophy were the Greeks and the Romans. Um, but we have something from the the Middle Kingdom of, of Kemet um, that that to me just blows my mind because it's philosophical and it's the earliest suicide prevention uh, literature that we have. It's called The Argument Between a Man and His Soul. And it tells the story of a man who is just fed up with life and he wants to kill himself. And so he decides to do so. But right before he does so, his soul uh, comes to him, speaks to him and says, if you do this, I will abandon you in the afterlife. And the afterlife was a major concept for the Egyptians. You know, this, mm-hmm. they, they, they readily understood this life was temporary and that the next life was going to be the good life. You know, they focused a lot of energy into, into uh, making sure that they have the best life in the afterlife. And so the man says, no, 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 no. We're going to have a good time in the afterlife. This life sucks. We're not, we're not going anywhere in this life. And his soul says, don't do it. I will abandon you. There is nothing you can say that will change my mind. And the man says, oh, I'll build you such a beautiful temple. I'll put the paintings on there. I'll put all our favorite foods in our temple. And he is going back and forth, back and forth with his soul, having this argument about ending his life. And, and again, you know, the papyri is damaged. So we don't know exactly how the story ends. But it's an amazing, uh, it's amazing just to to understand the intellectual concept behind this argument, right? Mm-hmm. This, this philosophical argument, at least in my opinion, I, I believe it's, it's an amazing philosophical argument of this man and his soul arguing over the merits of suicide. And, um, and there's another one uh, that I want to bring up. Um, it, it, it's... Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to get ramble on it. No, that's you're good, man. You want to say. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you something that I thought of when you were talking about both of those. One is, do we know when, like, the first, not really funerals or, like, preservations of body, observing the, de- um, the body before its death happens, so basically funerals, and also when the earliest signs of us talking about afterlifes came, and do those two have any correlation between each other? Oh, um... Well, we, we, we do know that it, it predates the rise of our, our ancient societies. I mean, 
um, Neanderthal. Neanderthals cared for their sick and their wounded, and they buried their dead. So we, we have that. Um, as far as an afterlife, uh, we, we, we don't really have uh, any means of testing for the concept of an afterlife. You know, I mean, um, early, early beliefs in gods and so forth, they predate any sort of writing and none of that stuff was written down. Um, we don't even, you know, none of that stuff was written down. It was never painted on caves or anything like that. Um, I, I, would, I would go so far as to say that it predates um, any religious, any like organized religious thought or something like that, it probably arose from a natural longing to want to believe that, you know, your family or your friends uh, is going to um, is going to a better place and stuff, you know. But but I mean, we have evidence of Neanderthals, and I mean, we have and Neanderthals lived a brutal, a tough, brutal life. They they um, they had tools, but they they would tackle their prey. Right. So imagine you see a horse and they hunted horses. Um, they, they, they tackle horses and other large ungulates and even um, other, you know, large feline uh, species and so forth. But they will tackle them and someone will come in with a spear or a sharpened knife. But they would have to actually do the physical work of grappling down prey. And you could imagine, you know, doing all of that. You're going to receive injuries and so forth. And I mean, we. And again, this just goes to just the the development of our species and so forth, and the the intellectual and the emotional attachment that that our ancient human species, uh, ancient humans and and uh, hominid species had. Um, if if a lion breaks his leg, he can't make it to the watering pool, so he's gonna die, mm-hmm. right? If the if the elephant breaks his leg, the other the predators are gonna come and get him. He's not going to make it. If you, if uh, if an early hominid, uh, if one of these Neanderthals broke his leg, somebody would either bring him water or take him to the watering hole. Somebody would bring him food, um, you know, when um, when 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 he was hungry or stuff, or whenever they 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 gathered food, they would put him in a wherever they made their base camp, wherever they made their home, they would put him there, and he would, you know. Um, you know, be taken care of. He would be, uh, be given time to heal. We we see these from from their bones. We see very serious bone breaks, and some and the, and these bone breaks would have um, ultimately led to their death. You know, because of the uh, the infection and so forth. But we we see that it would that that the person just didn't die immediately from that. That there were signs that the the breaks were healing when this person died, which which, you know, tells us that they were cared for after their injury. And we see some people with multiple breaks, you know, um, that would tell us that they were injured, they healed. Uh, sometime later, they were injured again, and they were taken care of to the point that they healed again. So, so we, can see, we can see that sort of caring. Um, but, I mean, we, we, we see this very early on that there was this, this, uh, this, um, let, let's call it a uh, a societal or a communal reaction to caring for the wounded and honoring the dead. But but no but no clear indication on you know when a belief in the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know when we started or humans started? Um, you talked about breaks with the Neanderthals. Uh, do you know when we started to like put casts around and start healing those um, breaks, re-breaking it's, things like that? Um, I, I I would say at some point in ancient Egypt, uh, and it's and it's amazing because we 
we, we have a few medical papyri from Egypt. We don't have their full medical library, but we do know that for, and, and most of their work was like trauma work and so forth. Because again, you're remembering that they're, they're building those pyramids and so forth. And they're moving those, you know, two and a half ton blocks of stone. So injuries are bound to happen. But we do know that they had the ability to, to make splints, that they, they frequently put people in splints. We do know that they figured out that um, but what they would do, right, is that if you had like a really bad, uh, bad break and like you were bleeding and so forth, they will put a piece of raw meat there to mm. to further your uh, your clotting. You know, um, uh, what else? They they and this is really this is um, sort of um, uh, just of a far one off one, right? But there's uh, there there are certain like women's health texts, right? That and, and it, it's really, it's really uh, sort of strange, but they figured out how to um, how to make ancient um, ancient birth control and ancient uh, pregnancy test. You know, how did they, they do that? Um, they they had a number of birth control methods. One was using dried crocodile dung. Um, it, it created this sort of alkaline um, this alkaline environment in the. Uh, in the woman and so forth that that sort of blocks fertilization uh another would be that they would urinate on uh on like barley seeds and if whether it took or or didn't take they they would figure out if somebody was pregnant or not but they had these amazing sort of like uh at least in that regards a very forward-thinking approach to um to birth control also pomegranates they would also use pomegranate seeds um, but but it, it was, it's amazing to think of their medical technology. And again, going back to the written records, and this and this is um, amazing. There's there's a cache of of royal uh, a royal archive cache called the Amarna letters, and these are and, th- and this was the diplomatic hub for the king Amenhotep the uh, third, and they they dictate his communications with the other powers in the uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and in one, it, it's funny. Uh, the, the Hittite king writes to, to Amenhotep III, and he says, hey, my sister, she's having difficulty conceiving. Can you send a physician? And, and, and it, it, gives a little, um, it gives a little insight into the personal relationship between the two kings. Mm-hmm. Amenhotep III says, I know your sister. She's 80 if she's a day. You know, like off the top making a joke, but he agrees to send a physician. Uh, we also we also get a little insight into how um, the the later uh, kings of the 18th dynasty in Egypt, you know, the, the greatest of all uh, Egyptian dynasties, how they managed um, their their uh, their role has had one of the great powers in the Near East, and it was gold. They they would use the threat. They they would they were one pay off people to keep the peace and to keep their borders secure, but they would also use the threat of simply paying other people to make war on somebody to, to sort of keep their position in place. Um, we, uh, we also get from, uh, from names, you know, and th- this is something else that, uh, that, that, that some historians really dive into, but the name of somebody, the name of a king, or the name of a, a prominent uh, person in society dictates a lot about what that society was going through. So, for example, uh, when we're when we're looking at the the kings of the of the eleventh dynasty, this is the dynasty that unified Egypt after the first intermediate period, after mm-hmm. um, a great chaos. 
that 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 brought down the monarchy and brought down society. Those kings have very interesting names. Um, names like Montu Hotep. Now Montu was a war god. Um, he was the he began as the personification of the desert sun, you know. Um, but Montu Hotep basically means the war god is pleased. So if you're naming your kid the war god is pleased, it it, it gives a, a nice insight into what that society is going through. Um, the types, uh, the fact that they're probably fighting a lot of wars. There's chaos, and you want to curry favor, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to naming your kid, let's say, Tothmosis or Amenhotep. You know, Amenhotep means Amen is pleased, or it is, or or it is pleasing or good to to Amen. Amen being um, uh, a variant of Amun, um, which which is their 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 their, their chief god. You know, he's basically they're basically saying that the chief god is pleased, everything is good. Or Tothmosis, Toth being the god of writing and knowledge, Toth is pleased. So where 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 are uh, the good? The great God is good, and the God of learning and wisdom is is happy. So our society is flourishing. You know, you can sort of see, uh, just based off the names, the different attitudes of those two societies. So it's almost impossible to talk about ancient Egypt without bringing up the the pyramids. Is there any historical records that we think of now in the 21st century of how they built those damn things and what the technology they were using to build the Sphinx, to build those humongous pyramids, you know, and and, and also why they did it. We know that a lot of it is around – it was for the gods um, and also for the dead. It was for the pharaohs, right? Yeah. Why they did those, how they did it is really what fascinates it, it, I mean, it, it goes into uh, the ancient, um, the ancient burial customs of the Egyptians. So Egypt is basically an oasis. It's literally just about twenty miles east and west of the Nile River Valley. You have fertile plains, and beyond that, it's just harsh, unforgiving desert—a very dry desert. And what 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 the people would do? And this is going back, you know, centuries before the, the pyramid were even built. You know, it's, it's probably going back around 45,000 B.C. Um, uh, no, not 45,000 B.C., 4,500 B.C. They would simply go into the desert and they would simply build, uh, not build, but they would dig these shallow graves and bury the dead inside these, uh, these hot sand pits. And what would happen would be uh, that the, the bodies would just dehydrate. However you place the body in there, the body would dehydrate, it wouldn't rot. It, it, it sort of fostered this belief in, in nothing ever changes. It really sort of, um, it really had a major influence on their, their beliefs in the afterlife. Uh, but the body would hold the shape, you know. Um, it, it's also why the African uh, golden wolf, what some people think is uh, it's like a jackal, would, would, uh, would become the, the image of, of Anubis. You know, because these these animals, they would simply wait for people to come out there and to dig the uh, the, the graves and so forth. And then they would simply go in and dig up and, you know, have after cadavers. But um, the sand, whenever the sand blew away and these burials were uncovered, the people would see that the body looked the same. They, it, it would be no change. Um, so so that sort of like gave them the idea for mummification. But also it, it spurred in them an interest to you know, um, create a better way to protect uh, the dead, you know, to protect uh, the bodies of, the, of their loved ones and, and of themselves. So they started putting stone slabs. First, it was mud brick uh, slabs over the, over the, the, uh, the burials, and these became known as mastabas. And 
has has uh has society their society advanced and became more hierarchical grander bastabas were created um eventually eventually the first pyramid um the, that we know of is called the step pyramid was created by a man named dozier and its architect emotep who would find fame himself as a doctor and become a more um immortalized as a god but Imhotep and Dozier had the great idea to create a grand mastaba. And what, what, what they did was they simply stacked them one on top of the other uh, with, with each successive tier being smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, that, that sort of was the catalyst for pyramid building. That, that was the, uh, the moment that the, uh, the ancient Egyptians were taught how to build pyramids. Uh, we, move, we, we move on from him to the first true pyramids being built. And it's wonderful stories about historical lemons and architect, uh, architectural disasters with um, the Pyramid of My Doom. Uh, the, the, they, 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 were, they were moving towards um, creating good pyramids. Uh, the, but, but, they, but they were going off of uh, Dozier's, uh, Dozier's um, uh, Staff Mastaba. Um, and the man, the man who taught... Uh, the Egyptians how to make uh, how to build pyramids was a king called Sneferu. Now Sneferu's first plan was to simply build a stack mastaba, um, and then to fill in the sides. And it would be it, it, it's called the uh, the pyramid of um, of my doom, and it sort of looks like a medieval tower. It's this rectangular base that just goes up. You know, it didn't have like the uh, the uh, the smooth sides that that we think about the pyramid today. Um, his next attempt is called the Bent Pyramid, and it's amazing. You can't go in there. It's incredibly dangerous, but this, this was the pyramid when they realized that they had the had angle sides. Uh, they, mm. This is the first one in Egypt that had angle sides. What they didn't do was clear the bedrock. So uh, they, they, they built on the sand, and the sand shifts. So it became very uneasy, very unsteady, very, uh, very late in the, um, very late in in uh, in the construction. They realized that everything was going to implode on itself. So what they had to do, they had to send off to Lebanon for cedars of Lebanon, and they and, and inside the pyramid, still to this day, the only thing keeping the pyramid from collapsing on itself are these giant logs. And Google the bent pyramid um after this and it's just astounding to see that now four thousand years later these logs are wedged between walls and they're the only thing keeping everything from imploding on itself you know uh but but that's that those those are two uh architectural lemons he finally got his act together and it's amazing right Uh, we want to we want to think that you know he's angry at his architect because the architect isn't doing the job right uh we were probably thinking that there's some historical uh record or some lost uh you're probably thinking that there's some lost papyri for him executing these architects for their for their misdeeds no um these uh these early kingdoms were family affairs He's not going to execute the architect because the architect is his son, right? Uh, the, the son is, is being given all these, uh, is being, being given this responsibility. And you can imagine the, the, the conversation coming back. Yeah. Uh, Dad, it happened again. We got to try again. <laughs> um, yeah. 
but 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 they get their act together and they make the first true pyramid in Kemet, and it's wonderful. It it um they they figured out that they had to clear all the way down to bedrock. They clear the bedrock. They build up. Um, they 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 move in all these blocks and stuff. And we believe because we know the quarry sites that they use, and the quarry sites are all the way in. In, in Upper Kemet, they're, they're deep in, they're deeper towards the African interior than than um, let's say the marshes where the Mediterranean is. Uh, but they're they're quarrying down there. They're floating them down on rafts down to the Nile. And as far as like these are uh, the pyramid construction, there there are a couple of different um, theories in place. One would be that they simply flooded the area because they they also had these amazing. Um, Hydro technology, uh, hydro technology in which they would flood areas to create water reserves for their planting seasons and then also uh, to create like permanent um, aquatic gardens and stuff for the uh, for the elites, for the for the wealthy elites. Um, but there, there's there's a lot of speculation on, on if they would uh, flood directly to their site or if they would simply uh, wet the sand and have, uh, again, more uh, cedar logs from Lebanon and simply pull the, the the blocks on these uh on these cedar logs and so forth directly to the building site if they would build up with if they would simply pile sand high um around uh creating these giant sand mounds basically around the pyramid site and then simply clear all the sand away when uh when everything was complete um but they they finally they got they got their act together they cleared on the bedrock they got all the blocks in place and and from there, a cultural competition was actually initiated between the kings of the uh, the fourth dynasty. You have to remember that pyramid building in, in Egypt was largely an old kingdom thing. It was something that began around thirty. Uh, um, uh, it began around like uh, the late two thousands uh, BC, and it was done before you know twenty five hundred BC. It was very very quick. It was very. It was really literally just one dynasty. And that was it. It was literally just the fourth dynasty. But he, but every one of those kings built a pyramid, except for one, Shepshakaf. Uh, Shepshakaf, and we don't know if this was an indication that pyramid building was draining the kingdom resources, but Shepshakaf, he doesn't build a pyramid. He goes back and he builds a mastaba. You know, oh. he, he harkens back to the past. And archaizing would be something that would dominate um, ancient Egyptian society. It would be something that they, that all the kings, especially uh, a king who wasn't very popular, who didn't fight wars or a new dynasty would do, they would always harken back to the past. Um, but but that's, that's, that's sort of like uh, the pyramids. And, and from there, you, I mean, you would have Khufu, Khufu built the Great Pyramid, um, of Giza, the the largest of the uh, of the of the, the ancient Egyptian of pyramids. The, uh, pyramids. Yeah. All right. So now I want to ask you some questions since we've been talking about ancient history. About I know you. I saw on your page that you studied American history, U.S. history, and that's yeah. something that fascinates me too. Is because, um, you know, just studying politics and stuff. You study like constitutional law and stuff like that. You study like basically the history of uh, where we got our stuff. We get like Blackstone. We get like people from England. And then we find these ourselves, you know, here, what's some interesting American history facts, you know, that interest you, fascinates you, you want to talk about? Um, I mean, where to begin? I mean, it's, it's, uh, so for example, um, the colonies, right. They, they all pretty much have these very interesting, uh, 
colonial legislature's history, right? But none of those legislatures were ever authorized by the British government. Um, an interesting fact uh, that I always that always amuses me and always sort of like gives a, like a what reaction from students is that whenever a colonial governor was sent out from, from England, he would advise not to give credence to the colonial subject. Do not engage with those legislatures. Those legislatures didn't have any authority. All authority was invested in the governors and the colonial governors. Now, the crux with that issue was that the, the British government would send out the governors, right, but wouldn't give them a salary. It wouldn't give them any money to oversee any sort of initiatives or policy programs that the government would have to institute in order to raise funds for, for their own salaries or for their own policy initiatives, the government would have to engage with those colonial legislatures. Um, the, the colonies of, uh, of Carolina, they, they were some sort of like um, political experiment. The lower proprietors, the persons who were given the colonial charter by King Charles II, they, they had all these wonderful ideas on how to run a, a society. So they, they granted a constitution to their, their colonists, and it was filled with wonderful things. But ultimately, again, they weren't giving credence to, to colonial legislatures as well. They were appointing colonial governors. Um, the pen, and, and another thing is that these colonies like Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, they were the personal property of those Lord proprietors. So basically every colonist who went there was a tenant. You know, it's like, it's like you own a million, um, well, no, not, not, let's not say a million, but you own like a thousand um, rental properties and you simply, you want, you want them rented out. You want people living there, but you don't want to hear their problems. You simply want them to pay their rent and pay their rent on time, you know? Um, it sort of, it sort of was uh, founded like that. Um, uh, Jamestown, most people think that Plymouth was uh, the first colony. Uh, it wasn't. Jamestown was the first permanent colony, but, um, but there, was a colony, there was a colonial experiment before that at Roanoke. Um, we don't know what happened at Roanoke. Roanoke is a genuine American mystery. Um, the, the resupply effort at Roanoke was interrupted due to the, um, the, the Spanish Armada, the attempt to invade uh, uh, England and depose Elizabeth Tudor by Philip uh, II of Spain. Uh, that, that interrupted any resupply missions. And when they finally did send a resupply to Roanoke, um, they found the settlement abandoned. Right. We do know that there was at least one child born there. Um, we don't know what happened to them. The only thing uh, there, there was only one um, one thing written in was written on a, a card on a tree bar. It was Croatoan. Other than that, we don't know what happened to the people who settled at Roanoke. What they, is Croatoan? We, we don't know. We don't even know what that means. That's not an English word. <laughs> Again, these, these are English colonists. And they, they carved in a row of a word that has no place in English. It's, it's not it's not English. It, it doesn't uh, translate to the local native peoples in in uh, in, in, Carolina, in North Carolina. Um, it, it's just a mystery. Like they they left. There's just one word that nobody knows, and they they're gone. We we to this day there we have never found. And there there have been investigations to figure out what happened to the people at Roanoke, but nobody knows. It's just it's 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 a it's a it is a genuine American mystery. 
That's um, fascinating. It, it also is fascinating, like how long and how many people died just coming here alone. You know, um, those trips were so long. And if like for years, like people would go back to England and, and they wouldn't even know they would leave their families in America and they wouldn't even know if they would ever see them again. You know, there's so many stories of people who are like legislators, like you were saying, or people who were um, diplomats and stuff that had to go back and, you know, for, they were gone for 10 years, you know, you never know what's going to happen to your family. I think there is some stories even from Roanoke that I've heard of people who left and then came back and everyone was gone. And he was, he was, he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and that's, that, that, that actually had the long history uh, where people simply, you know, leaving an established life in America and, and going like uh, either for like uh, official government work, like you think of John Adams, John Adams spent a lot of time in the 1780s away as a diplomat. You know, he was uh, the first, he was an American ambassador to Great Britain, American ambassador to the Netherlands. And John Adams, you know, first and foremost, he was a backcountry lawyer. He was a, a trained lawyer, but he also had a farm to run. Um, and when, when he was away, the, the farm duties fell on his wife and she had to oversee their, their farm for, for herself and, and for her children uh, while, while he was away for years at a time. Um, uh, in, in official government roles, you think of um, who else? Who, who's another good example I can use for that? Um, we, we can't say Jefferson, but but Jefferson, of course, was in a completely different socioeconomic bracket. He he left for years at a time. He was a uh, American ambassador in France. He he had he got a, a firsthand look at the French Revolution and the dev- and the uh, and the uh, chaos that erupted there. Had they began to challenge. Louis the uh, the sixteenth right to rule, um, but 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 even with him, you know, he didn't know if you know if uh, if he was um, if, if if there would be some sort of epidemic and his slaves would die off, or or if uh, there would be some sort of epidemic and it crops just wouldn't come in, you know. So yeah, you you can see that, and then also, uh, and then this is a very interesting feature, but there used to be um, migratory workers called birds of passage. And these people would book uh, passage, right, and come over and help with seasonal work in the United States, like in in uh, in New England. You know, the apples are coming in, so these guys are going to book passage, come over, work for a season, pick at apple pickers and pressing apples to make cider, and afterwards they're going to go back. Or they will come in, get a factory job for a year or five, and then leave and go back home. They will come over... And, and just sort of be these seasonal or these um, long-term temporary workers and then go back home. And, and it, will, it will be uh, vice versa. You know, if you left, um, you, really, you, uh, you probably wouldn't make it the journey on uh, over, but you don't know if, any, if, if everybody was going to be okay back home. You know, like if you left Norway to pick apple for a season in, in Maine, you didn't know what, what would happen in Maine if you would get sick and die maybe far away from home or if you know your family back uh back in norway would die and wouldn't make it we also have to assume that some of those people who got here and saw a new opportunity for their life would stay too and like leave their Um, old lives behind i mean uh and i mean and just to highlight two areas you know someone coming from germany you know wouldn't probably i mean because you know germany between the uh the 18 let and I mean, I, I want to focus this into like the 1880 to like 1910. Uh, someone coming from Germany would probably just come for a bit, make some money, and then leave. 
right? But someone coming from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they would never go back. Um, you have to remember that they, they wouldn't have, uh, unless they were a, a middle-class German or Magyar, they had no voting rights. You know, if you were um, a, a Slav, you had no voting rights. If you were Croatian, no voting rights. If you were Slovenian, no voting rights, no, no personal rights, no nothing. It was all dictated by the, the German and the Hungarian elites to you. Uh, you came to the United States, I mean, and you were automatically, you know, you, you could pursue citizenship, okay, which means that you could get the, uh, the franchise. You had, uh, there were educational opportunities. There, there, were, there was this sort of like the nascent beginning, beginning to the public school system. So you had educational opportunities for your kids. You would have been making more money than you ever would have imagined. And also your diet, you know, one of the things that really astounded these immigrants coming from like, let's say, Southern Italy and, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was your diet. You had access to foods that you that only wealthy people had, had access to back home, primarily meat. There was so much meat available. And we actually have these, we actually have like uh, letters, uh, caches of letters and stuff that people wrote about um, dictating that. I don't know if, you, if you've uh, remember the movie Gangs of New York. I do remember that movie, yeah. Um, there, there's, a, there's a scene with these, uh, these political um, bosses and they're watching the immigrants come off of these ships. And you have some people who are very angry that the immigrants are coming in, these nativists and so forth. They, they, they're very angry about it. They have nothing better to do with their life but hate on this. But you have these enterprising political bosses who are like, that's a vote, that's a vote, that's a vote. So the moment you came off that boat and so forth, somebody was trying to pull you in. And in some cities, you know, uh, the, the people who stayed, who, who found this better life, some cities just became havens for them. You know, you think of um, Boston in particular and the Irish, you know, think, think of the famine, right? The British government isn't, I mean, the British government are pretty... Um, they, they were hands-on when it came to uh, international economics and so forth, but they were pretty hands-off when it came to, you know, looking after the social welfare of people in the 1840s, 1850s, and so forth, you know? They, they thought Catholic emancipation was good enough that the problem is solved. The famine hits, and people are dying, you know? Like, there's no, there's no end. To, and it, the famine wasn't a one-season thing. It bled on for years, so you have this mass exodus out of Ireland. They're going to Canada. They're going to the United States. They're going to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. They're just, they're just getting as far away from Ireland as possible. They're just trying to literally just find food and work. And Boston becomes a haven for them. The, the city population swells. Um, they, they, they very much uh, reshape the... The, uh, the, 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 they very much reshape the character of the city, you know? Uh, and it, it goes way beyond just, you know, the back of all team Boston Celtics. I'm talking about, like, the flavor and the characteristics of the city. Um, they, they find new political opportunities. They find new economic, industrial opportunities. Uh, the same thing with, with, uh, with New York. Um, there, there's, another, uh, there's another film, right? And it's called Far and Away. And it's one of my it's one of my favorite historical films because it, it gives a pretty good example of what it would have been like. Um, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman star in the film. 
uh, Tom Cruise plays this uh, this um, this boy. Uh, it's a young man who whose father dies, and he's looking at his life, and he's looking at being a tenant farmer on a wealthy landowner's estate, right? And the wealthy landowner, he he owns the farms, he owns the local pub. He literally is the lord of, of the town. You know, everyone is in this sort of rural countryside area. And he said, this is not the life for me. I'm going to get away. So he, he books passage and he makes it to America. Uh, and and he, he gains fame and wealth and, and, and uh, a life that he never believed possible by, by first having a career, had a boxer, right? He, uh, he, he dresses in fancy clothing and so forth. He, uh, he see uh, he's dating. He, you know, he has a love interest and so forth. He's he's making it and so forth. He's he's a boxer and he also becomes an enforcer for a local political boss. Um, things go bad. Uh, things go bad for him there. He decides that he's going to head west. And again, the west was another opportunity. Um, heading west meant you get free farmland, you get free land. So they rush west, and this is coinciding with the Oklahoma. Um, what, what the, uh, cause you know, it, it's, um, you probably heard of the term Oklahoma Sooners, right? Yeah. The Sooners and the boomers. Um, the boomers were the people who came after statehood and got free land. The Sooners were the people who came before statehood and took the land, you know? So yeah, those two separate groups and like that, but he's coming, he's coming as a, as a boomer. He's coming as someone after Oklahoma who had, had a statehood who's coming to gain free land. And it, and it, it sort of ref, um, it sort of uh, reflects, you know, pretty accurately what that immigrant experience would have been like. You wouldn't have had just one shot at coming here and getting a factory job or or making your way and so forth. There were multiple avenues available for that. And of course, that's like that's um, uh, starkly contrasted with the situation in the American South, you know, where there was no ease of access for African-Americans and you were pretty much locked in to sharecropping. They, they very much uh, denied those, op- they very stringently and forcefully denied those opportunities down there. Um, and, and I mean, this is before even California was a destination. You know, this, this is people looking squarely at land in Oklahoma, Kansas and uh, Nebraska and so forth. Um, people coming in to, to become homesteaders. Um, and even even with the homestead, I mean, it's amazing photographs of when the people got there, they were literally just there. You know, um, Sears became big because Sears used to sell um, house housing kits. These were houses, these were um, uh, prepackaged materials that you could that they would send out to you and you could set up a house on the prairie or wherever you were at. Um, and and most of those houses are still standing. Like some of those houses in, uh, in the Midwest, they're, they're still standing. They're, they're still going strong. Um, but other, other people, if you couldn't afford a Sears house, what they ended up doing was they took clods of like this thick soil. And I mean, and their prairie soil had never been tilled before. So it's just compact and thick, you know? Um, they, they will simply take uh, thick, thick slabs of, these, of, uh, of this soil and make houses of it. And I mean, some of these houses are still standing from like Minnesota on down um, of uh, of these uh, these prairie sod uh, homes. 
No, yeah, that's fascinating. And then you could always think about the Manifest Destiny, Lewis and Clark, and going to Oregon and everything like that, Oregon Trail. The the Manifest Destiny with you know with United States. That's like what the idea was formatted with this this um this American dream. This there's always more. You know, you could always have more. We can always be better. And something I learned this last um this last term taking constitutionalism is that like, you know, we've always basically the whole entire time we, we've, we were, we've been striving to ensure this, this phrase in the preamble that all men are created equal because for most time, all men have not been created equal in America. No. But then you get to like you. So, you, I mean, you, it starts with Jefferson and then you get to Abraham Lincoln who does, he takes those words and he starts the Gettysburg address and he starts the Republican party and starts to franchise people. And then, and then you get to Martin Luther King who plays directly off of Abraham Lincoln standing in front of his um, monument, you know, and it's, it's, it's this play on words that you know we stated something that's like the american dream but it's never been accessed to everyone before and so all throughout history you get you get a testament of certain individuals trying to make it so like or making the people see a better future for everybody oh yeah um and, and i mean to go off of that i mean we, we go to theodore roosevelt right and roosevelt's uh he's interested in many aspects of american history but he comes up with the whole deal aspect, you know, um, he comes up with the, with the concept he calls, he, he, uh, he called the square deal. And, and again, Roosevelt is looking at, at post-industrial America, right? Where uh, people transition from agriculturalism and most people, we, we, mo most of us uh, who aren't actively engaged in commercial farming or subsistence farming, we don't really understand the, the scheduling um or, or the personal schedules or responsibilities of farming. And you're not out there 24 seven farming, okay? Um, when, when, uh, when, when you're planting crops, you're very busy, it's all hands on deck. But once the, once the crops have been sold, um, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty lax. You know, the animals basically take care of themselves. Um, you just have to like feed them and uh, make sure they have access to water and stuff and, and that they're not sick or anything like that. But they, they go on, they, you know, they, they keep on keeping on on their own. And as long as uh, there's no freak weather accident, the crops will do what they do. Um, with industrial work, though, many of the people were just struck by how monotonous it was. Um, it was a lot of workplace uh, accidents and stuff that disfigured people. Um, a book, uh, if you haven't read it already, but it's a great book. Uh, if, if you do want to check it out, it's uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. It gives a perfect look into what a meatpacking plant was like and what the life of an industrial worker was like in Chicago around the turn of the 20th century. Um, you, you came in from wherever, from wherever you, uh, you immigrated from and you immediately got work. They put you in a plant, whether, and I mean, and they, they had people at every stage of the, of the uh, carcass preparation process. You know, you had knife men, uh, men who wielded these uh, these knives, like experts and so forth, carving up the meat and so forth. But it was dangerous, and there was no workers' compensation or anything like that, any sort of safety hazard um, protection, anything like that. So uh, these guys would get injured, and it would be like, okay, get back to work. You can't get back to work. The doors over there. Bring in the next one. It was literally just a a, a, re a constant reshuffling of cards for these people. Um, but Roosevelt comes out and he, he, he puts in place, you know, anti-monopolistic laws. 
to sort of break up, you know, these these uh, the companies that had no competition that treated their workers pretty shoddily and edged everybody else out of, of an industry. Um, from Roosevelt, we, we go through to, uh, from, from Teddy Roosevelt, from Theodore Roosevelt, we go to Franklin Roosevelt, who comes up with the New Deal. And again, this is, uh, this, is this again, is more civic um, engagement policies that are designed to sort of ease the suffering of people and to sort of make the American dream more accessible to, um, to, to, to more people. Um, and it's escaping me, but Truman had a deal and Lyndon Johnson had a deal. They, they all went back to this whole deal with the public to, to sort of be the, the cornerstone of, of, their, of, their, uh, of their political um, agenda. Uh, and, and, and I mean, and just to like sort of backtrack a bit, um, yeah, you said that you're also uh, studying like uh, government, you're interested in like constitutional law and so forth. Um, when I first got into teaching, right, one of the first things uh, they had us do was to create a classroom management plan. And my plan was to create a class government, like a miniature class government. And my, my first policy, my, 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 first, um, uh, my, my first plan was to simply say, okay, we're going to have a class government, we're going to hold elections and make a class president, and I'm going to use that class president to, you know, help me manage the class. And I and it, it was good, you know. It checked all the uh, all the boxes for what the assignment called for. But my instructor, he looked at it and says, "Okay, Ted, uh, th this is good, but how is this actually going to work? I mean, it, you don't just come up with something that looks good on paper. You're going to actually have to put this into practice. And the first thing, and I mean, and and you get opportunity to put it into practice during your internships. Um, and it, it, I mean, the the assignment went well, but it fell flat on its face. Um, First thing I learned was that you can't appoint anybody because that person's authority is going to be challenged, right? Yeah. And when you're when you're structuring the activity for these kids, you you wanna you wanna give them decisions and so forth. You wanna let them come up with with uh, you wanna structure it so that you know which decisions they're 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 choosing. But you wanna give them free uh, free range as far as. Um, you know, what, if they're going to have a unicameral or bicameral legislature, uh, let them decide what they're going to call their chief executive. Let them decide what they're going to call the legislature. Let them choose how many legislators they're going to have. Um, let, let them decide what, what powers these legislators are going to have, you know. And it actually Blossom did something pretty good. Um, uh, I, I've, I mainly, uh, I've run through the exercise in public school and so forth, but there's differences between um, you know, teaching in a public school system and then teaching with like homeschoolers and so forth. Uh, with homeschoolers, you can, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit more freeing, you know, you can, uh, you can say, okay, well, if you guys want to tax yourselves, you can save your money and so forth, have a class party with uh, public school. You're probably going to have to run that as like a, an after school club if you're going to collect funds or anything like that, or have them collect funds on themselves. But, but the class government aspect of it is always interesting because, um, at least in my experience, I've found that with, uh, with middle school age kids and so forth, they often don't develop party politics. Everything is factional. You know, it's I want to pursue this policy. Who's going to support me? It's never a long term thing. What high schoolers, they're thinking, how do we control this? How, how do we keep this amongst us? You know, like who can we bring in? Who can we satiate? Who who can uh, who can be brought in at reliable 
uh, votes and so forth and liable supporters of, of whatever we want to do. The, the fascinating thing about that, too, is like, one, you, you basically saw the foundations of popular sovereignty while you give people the voice. And two, you see that the more mature people in, in it tend to want to keep the power while the people who are younger try to push the policies and yeah. like the things that help people. And you can see that even in American politics. You got people like AOC who's just – young young um, um, house of representative representative who's pushing these policies for change you know and then you get people like nancy pelosi mitch mcconnell who basically their whole agenda is keeping power within their parties so it's fascinating that you saw it with kids because it's the exact same foundation of what happens with people in government yeah yeah uh and i mean it it, i mean it's Sometimes you have an enterprising middle schooler who thinks that far down, but for the most part, it's it's on a uh, an ad hoc basis for whatever crisis they think they're having. You know, uh, whether it's um, determining rules for their House of Representatives or determining if they're going to have like uh, term limits or whatever and so forth. And they and they can be and and it's uh it's I, I try not to directly influence them and so forth. I like to see, I like to, because again, it's, it's sort of like a social experiment. I, I like to see, to take a hands-off approach and let them just play through it and so forth. But instantly, whatever you discuss in a lesson, they're going to take to like heart, you know? Um, they, I, I noticed it with middle schoolers and so forth, they would contemplate term, pl- uh, term limits and some would actually implement term limits so that everybody had access to it. And this was something that we discussed in Rome, where the Romans had like, you know, you they, they had like a, a one-year, um, early in the Republic, they had like a one-year term limit where you would stand for office, serve for a year, and then you were, you're out of rotation for the next two or three years. And they started to implement the rotation in office so that everybody who wanted an opportunity to serve in the legislature would have that opportunity um they the uh the older kids and so forth they they would understand the concept of like secretaries and so forth so they would you know create cabinet level positions and so forth you know and and again um giving them the opportunity to choose who has like secretary of state powers or treasurer powers and so forth just giving them that that bit of like leeway and so forth and letting them uh select their own persons and so forth and for the most part, you will see the uh, the standard, you know, somebody serving for a term or two terms and then out of office and then somebody else comes in. You know, this reshuffling of the deck in that sort of way. And also with the uh, with with the younger kids and so forth, if you just because you served as vice president didn't automatically mean that you will be uh, a candidate for president and so forth. It was this random sort of like shuffling of the deck whenever they whenever they were electing a new president, whereas again with um with the older kids and so forth serving a vice president was almost a shoe-in for for the presidency you know they you you would almost sort of see the um the uh a, a little course of offices that someone would have you know someone may start off uh as a member of their house representatives maybe move on to their senate from the senate gain a a cabinet position either it's like chancellor or prime minister and then move on to vice president before being president you know, mm-hmm. you you will see this sort of ordered structure to to these offices. How long they stayed in office was always up in uh, up in uh, up in the air. I have one uh, kid. He was like, I don't know if you remember the show Boardwalk Empire. I don't. But he, uh, it, it was a show about a bootlegger who was also a 
a um a political boss in, in New Jersey and the political boss kept uh he kept everybody in office he was not himself the the main office holder he was never the mayor of the town he was simply the treasurer but 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 he he held meetings and he decided who was going to get what office and he he played quote unquote the honest broker he ensured that his four friends all got a chance to be president while he himself stayed at the chancellor of the class you know they they had a uh, um uh, f- uh, four cabinet level positions and so forth. Uh, well, three cabinet. Well, yeah, four cabinet level positions. There was the president, the vice president, the chancellor, the prime minister, and the governor. Um, they, these were their, you know, they, and they, again, very unimaginative group. Those were all the choices for executive officer. So they simply took those titles and made them cabinet level positions. But he ensured all the friends rotated the president and amongst those other positions and so forth to ensure that there wasn't any competition between them and to ensure that his long-term class policies were implemented and never challenged. Um, Ingenious kid. Uh, Uh, Sounds like um, someone who fascinates me a lot. And obviously this is a kid, but you know, the way that's kind of what, how it worked with Stalin in the Soviet union. He was grand chancellor and uh, he had all his like buddies basically under him, but if they challenged him, you know, eh, you know, yeah. so that's, that's one thing. I don't know if you know anything about the Soviet union, but that's one place in history that just absolutely fascinates yeah. me. The revolution. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of history's great. It, it could have been great, you know, and, and this is again, you know, um, you know, studying ancient states and so forth, you you analyze where where some states went wrong, and you say, "Wow, this state could have been great if they had made this adjustment." But again, um, and, and it wasn't like it wasn't like Stalin's uh, his his um his character flaws were known. You know, Lenin uh, famously spoke out against um, you know uh, Stalin, and and he he highlighted his fears about Comrade Stalin. But again. It's, you know, it, he, he really fit in with his period. You have to remember that when Stalin is accumulating all the power and not leaving office and, and trying and, and, and not even trying, but just doing things that would have gone against the Soviet constitution, you had uh, Hitler doing that exact same thing in Germany. You had Mussolini doing that exact same thing in Italy. And interestingly enough, people put Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, in that position. When you, yeah. when you, look, at, when you look at Roosevelt, in 1932, the, uh, the, president's, uh, the presidency wasn't between what's good for the American people, it's what's going to happen to the American Republic, right? Roosevelt came in with ideas that even, even, you know, even his supporters were like, whoa, wait a minute, the federal government has never done that before. What are we going to do? You know, what, what, why, why, why are we going to do this? I mean, because when, when you really analyze it, right, the big, um, the, 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 the three big uh, pillars from Roosevelt's presidency are Social Security, yep. which is a, an old age pension tax that workers um, agree to pay and collect, you know, whenever they, if they live long enough to file or if they choose to file. Um, also, it would be what we now consider um, social welfare, which was, um, which at the time, and it's still in some states, referred to as aid to families with dependent children. 
right? Um, and and the and the third one, and this is one that never really caught on, but it's the concept of packing the Supreme Court. I was one just the, about to bring that up. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it will will let will. A fourth one was his decision to run for more than two terms. Yeah, but yeah, they they yeah. corrected that with the constitutional amendment. But those were things that frightened people who who looked at the American Republic. They were like, "Hey, guy, you had two terms. Leave office." You know, in 1936, and he's like, "No." Nope. And again, 1936 is a critical year because again, you know, you um, this is where things start to heat up on the international scene. But he's running for another term. Um, he's running for another term saying that his work isn't done. He's contemplating packing the Supreme court and he's continuing to, he's continuing to throw up new deal policies that um, further evolve or, well, and it's, it's how you want to look at it. You can either say it evolved, it led to the evolution of the American Republic or it denigrated yeah. it, the, uh, the value, the, uh, the inherent spirit of the old American Republic. Uh, but Roosevelt is in that conversation as well. Um, all four of them, yeah. I haven't even thought about the comparison. You you always can see the comparisons between Stalin and Hitler. Like, it's very, yeah. very, very um, apparent. But, you know, I mean, and Mussolini to an extent. But adding Roosevelt in, or FDR into that category makes a lot of sense because of those two things. Specifically, what you said was packing the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was just validly like, no, that is not what we're doing. We're not going to add more seats. Because... Um. Because the four knights, remember? I, yeah. I don't know if you knew this. The four knights of the of the Supreme Court, who just basically yeah. the old guys and and Roosevelt, everything, everything yeah. that he, he just, wanted to put in place, they struck down. Yeah, struck, yeah. So we should explain for people who don't understand that. If you want to explain it, there were four. Um, if you want to explain it better than me, there was four Supreme Court justices who were older and. FDR knew that, and so he wanted, and everything he implemented, they just smacked down and called it yeah. unconstitutional. Yeah. Um, it, and I mean, and, and they weren't, they weren't wrong. I mean, they're, they're the singers hurt people, but they weren't wrong in, in challenging and saying that, Hey, you know, this, this is violating a certain, uh, constitutional pro uh, protection that's been inherited in the system for, for, uh, since forever. Um, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't as though they, uh, it was any real animus against him or anything. They were just worried about the type of system that he was creating and so forth. Uh, and, and it wasn't all of his policies, but it was some uh, policies that that uh, it, it was some policies, some programs that that they felt just weren't really going to benefit mm -hmm. the nation. And this was more just power grabbing for Roosevelt. Um, but but yeah, uh, and and Roosevelt eventually backed away. The only reason. I want to I mention this, too, and I think we should highlight it, that the only reason Roosevelt backed away from court packing was because one of the justices, uh, uh, the justices started to die off and retire. So he was able to put his people on the court. Um, but again, it, it, was, it was shocking. Uh, and then it was also Roosevelt's expert use of propaganda. You have to remember that during Roosevelt's presidency, Stalin was Uncle Joe. Yeah, you have, you have to remember. You have to remember those fire sat. Uh, and again, this is another sort of innovation, and this is a comparison that um, that uh, last year, well, not even last year, but the last two years, whenever I, I taught, I, I drew between Roosevelt and and Trump. Trump's tweeting was the 21st century version of Roosevelt's fireside chats. Roosevelt would, and again, this is before. Uh, this is like in the early years, the early season of mass communication. 
Roosevelt understood that he could directly, he didn't have to talk to reporters, he didn't have to talk to his political colleagues, he didn't have to do anything. He just had to make his appeal to the American public. And that's what he did. He, he hosted a presidential, uh, basically a podcast, a radio show, in which he gave, uh, in which he explained what he was doing, what his policy aim was, and what the benefit to the American people were going to be. Donald Trump tweeting did the exact same thing to his fans. Only the only difference being is that when when you would hear Roosevelt uh, give those fireside chats, even on something that you didn't like, you're like, "Wow, this guy's really he's really charisma." Crazy. Yeah, I mean he he knows what he is doing. He he is uh, he's expertly skilled in 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 uh, public propaganda, manipulating the public and getting them to buy in to a propaganda. Um, but 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 uh, but even going beyond that, we have to remember that that it's under Roosevelt that um, that uh, Japanese internment occurs. Yeah, you know, um, and, and again, these are things that, and and it's 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 it's, it's a great sorrow. It's a national tragedy, and it's something that we need to address. But again, it's something people don't. They, they don't feel comfortable talking about, and they don't. They, they don't like to talk about. You know, no, they don't. It's always, you know, whenever you talk about Roosevelt, just stick to the New Deal and and the fact that he overcame having polio. Never mention court packing. Never mention uh, running for more uh, terms than than uh, than was uh, than was constitutionally not, not constitutionally, but not constitutionally, but not like. Um, I think you, I think you are right. Yeah. So it was almost, but it was, it was a constitutional principle because of how influential George Washington was and everybody followed that before FDR. You know, it was, it was an implicit, it was implicit in the constitution that as a president, you wouldn't get too power hungry and you would only serve two terms basically. Um, And you know, something fascinating that you brought up the internment camps. Korematsu versus U.S. um, That Supreme Court case. Dude, nobody understands that. They, they, there's no precedent for that. There was no, no precedent for the. Um, you, you were gonna say something? Yeah. No. 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 I was. I was just gonna go on and um and say yeah. I mean it's. It. I mean well. And again, it sort of fit with this dynamic in the court, and with the court, with just speaking on issues that nobody had ever really. I mean, well, the the only the only correlation to it, right? There's only two other correlations to the court hitting this precedent like that, and that would be the Dred Scott decision, in which um, the Taney court yeah. ruled far broad and wide about the the rights of African Americans in the uh, in the uh, the old republic and so forth, um, and then also the the uh, the the Georgia case, the uh, the Cherokee case, uh, in which the, the Marshall court said that you know Georgia didn't have the right to seize. Cherokee lands or uh, to, yeah, yeah. or to uh, force them off the land, you know? Um, but, but, uh, but, but Gordon Karamasu's his, his case, it, it, um, it, it hit an arrow in federal, uh, judicial decisions and so forth that I, I still don't think, I, I, I think the, the only one that sort of come close to it would be the, um, uh, what was, uh, Dress um, no, no, no. Uh, in the modern era, in the modern oh. era, the only one that comes close to it would be the gay marriage case. You know, mm. that that would be the only one where it's like this diam. I mean, because literally, um, the the court substantive due process. Yeah, I mean, it's 
the, the, the court, I mean, the court really took a leap on that because, again, we had federal legislation. I was, I was going to say the Loving case, but there was mm-hmm. never federal legislation against interracial marriage. It was mainly a state thing. But there was federal legislation against gay marriage, you know, the Defense yeah. Marriage Act. And there was also federal policies within the within the uh, military and within other aspects of the uh, other um, departments in the, fel- the, 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 the uh, federal government that, you know, didn't forbade homosexual relations or anything like that, but strictly regulated it. And then, you know, yeah. we have a, a Supreme Court decision that says, nope, nope, not, none of that is applicable anymore. That's basically what Scalia said in his dissent, too. Um, but, you know, I, you could also make the argument, two other arguments that, um, you know, so for those cases, Korematsu, it's basically violating human rights and then you you fast forward and you see also other substantive due process cases which we find the reason that we find them okay and the supreme court has validated them is because of it adds uh human rights so like roe v wade is a big one um and before that um griswold v connecticut which was the contraception law before that um and then you get lawrence v texas which basically was the precedent for obergefell's and gay marriage and so and even brown v board to some extent there wasn't any precedent but we knew that those things were needed and that and the supreme court basically saw with brown v board was the warren court and then the kennedy court i think it was the kennedy court with um roe v wade and obergefell basically or he at least wrote the opinions but basically we we were looking at something and they they didn't find any earlier precedent but they said this is needed and the right for women's for their own bodies the right for people to express love in certain different ways like you said loving too and then the rights to um and then the right for inter integrated schools they were like these are so valid and so necessary for american constitution that it is constitutional which is almost a backward interpretation but we th- don't even think second about it unless you really read the way constitutional law is structured you know yeah and i mean oh you know I, uh, we spent a lot of time on antiquity but we could we could spend equally uh have my time on american constitutionality and um and my, my whole approach to it and it, it's something that whenever i uh whenever we begin us 50 with a class whenever I, whenever i begin it with a class is you know it evolves you know uh there there's an old principle from the british right and which the british do not write down any of their constitutional um precedents they they believe in a living breathing constitution things will change we will change with it you know, um, New Zealand sort of take that approach as well, where the New Zealanders, they don't have a written constitution. They have a series of, of, of uh, constitutional acts, just acts of legislature, um, and then also uh, a treaty, um, the, the, uh, the treaty between the British and the, uh, and the native, um, uh, the native peoples of New Zealand. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I cannot think of what their names are, though. Yeah. Uh, that's gonna bug me, but uh, but the uh, but the native peoples of New Zealand and the British government they they have a treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, and and that sort of forms like uh, the core of their constitutional outlook. You know, it's it's sort of like with the Romans where they they had a, the Romans had a constitution. It was just never written down. It was just this series of of uh, intangible acts and precedents that dictated their behaviors. Um, but but with us and so forth, it's. It's, it's written documents and they change. They, uh, it's in their nature to change. It's in the nature for people to make them change. Yeah. Um, and then also the amendment process as well, you know, like. Article um, five. Uh, 
I, I was uh, I was just having a conversation with somebody who was up in arms, right, about um, about women's rights and stuff not being taken seriously. And I was telling her about the ERA, like <laughs> the ERA had been on the books since the seventies. Um, and I was also telling her, and it's, it's just interesting, it, it, it's, it's not just an American phenomenon, but it's a global phenomenon to where the Equal Rights Amendment came within a hair's breadth of passing, and then Phyllis Shalafly appeared. And Phyllis Shalafly is like the, she, she is a feminist icon in one respect, because she, she was a woman who was educated in her own right, had a family, had kids, and left her family and her home to have the great public career. Um, unfortunately for the feminists is that she had this, uh, her public career was pretty much an ant, was pretty much um, on an anti-feminist arc. Yeah. You know, she single-handedly campaigned to have the, the amendment killed and to reinforce what she felt was, you know, the appropriate social position for women. But in the process of that, she became the model for every feminist, every woman who wants to have it all, who wants to have their career outside of the home and the family at home, right? Mm. It, I don't know. It, it struck me as odd and curious. Well, something fascinating, too, about the 19th Amendment is, um, you know, it gave husbands and wives, not really husbands, but wives the ability to disagree with their husbands politically. Mm -hmm. Because before, you know, you saw... Abigail Adams was a very strong um, lady, but she didn't ever go against the politics of John Adams. Um, yeah. But, you know, in the modern era, we see um, Reagan's wife. We see, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Hillary Clinton. We see Michelle Obama. We see strong Betty women. Eddie Ford, yeah, we see strong women having, not opposing, but having their own voice within yeah. politics. The, the role of the... Um, First Lady is becomes different. It becomes this almost voice for women. Um, and now, obviously, we have Kamala Harris, who's the vice president, maybe running for president in four years. We don't know what's going to happen with Biden. But, um, and, but that will change, it, um, change everything as well. But, you know, it, the, the 19th Amendment, when it came along, it really, it really established the voice of, for women politically. Because, like we said, like, like how I said earlier, we were always striving for these words, all men are created equal. And the framers knew that they didn't want to put race in the, in the, inside of the um, Constitution because they knew that one day some people would come along and, and it would evolve, like you said. But they did put the words men because yeah. it was so – they could see a future where um, African-Americans integrated with white men, but they could yeah. not see a world where women and men were the same politically equal, you know? Oh, man. Um, so – the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, uh, exactly what you just said. They, 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 uh, these were the uh, the early generation that the first like uh, the first feminist organization in the United States. They came together and they outlined exactly what you're talking about. They outlined the path to the 19th Amendment to giving women this equal rights and so forth. They they actually outlined the path for the ERA and the 19th Amendment. Um, but those those ladies, um, when the civil rights amendment were being discussed and, and passed uh, at the conclusion of the of the U.S. Civil War, they jumped up and they said, "Hey!" Um, and and it, it caused great friction within uh, because they were also abolitionists, many of them. But it caused great friction within the old abolitionist community um, and and this uh, and the nascent uh, feminist community, where they argued uh, unsuccessfully that. 
that they, they shouldn't just give black men the right to vote. They should be giving everybody included the right to vote. Let's put white women and black women in there as well. And, and, and again, you know, change is difficult. And it was, it was enough of a hurdle to, to give black men the right to vote, right? Um, springing it even, even on radical Republicans and so forth, the people who were desperately pushing. Like Lincoln the, and, and such. Well, well, Lincoln wasn't a radical Republican. Uh, more of uh, Thaddeus Stevens, you know? Oh, yes. Uh, the, the old time, uh, the, the, the great, and I mean, we're all living in Thaddeus Stevens, uh, his, his great vision for the, for the Republican, which everybody's having these rights and so forth. But... But um, but he and like Benjamin Franklin Butler, these guys are pushing it right. But they're also gauging the more uh, cagey um, Republicans in, uh, in in the Senate and in the House, and um, engaging you know local temperatures within the uh, the free states. And it, it was it was like uh, almost a dead heat um, with with giving. Uh, with giving rights, uh, voting rights, the suffrage to uh, to black men, and it, to, to even mention, you know, white women or black women getting the right to vote was just would, would have just been too much. It would have oh, yeah. literally it, it it would take another generation before that concept really caught on. And I mean, Wyoming, Wyoming is the first state to do so, but Wyoming does it about thirty years later uh, in the eighteen nineties. Wyoming, mm. Wyoming does that. Um, uh, but but again, you know, moving on from like it, moving on from that to the very public role of like a first lady and so forth, we still find um, even through the 1920s and so forth that that within ten within the first ten years of women having the right to vote, we don't really see very active first ladies. Right? Um, Eleanor Roosevelt really changes that. She was somebody who just had, and I mean, and she and Franklin disagreed. Uh, some of their dis- disagreements were publicly known, but many of their disagreements were privately known and so forth. But, you know, throughout Franklin's presidency and uh, re- right until the end of her life, she took her political platform and she marched to the beat of her own drum. Like she pursued them, pushed them. I mean, even going into like Beth Truman, Beth Truman, uh, Harry Truman's wife, she sort of played a, a backseat role. Harry Truman was, uh, uh, they had a very loving marriage and so forth. And she never really, took a, a platform or a policy opposing him. As a matter of fact, Beth Truman, uh, she went back to Missouri. You know, she, she gave up on the whole Washington scene. She didn't like it. And it's a, it's a, it's a funny, it's funny antidotes, right? About her writing the president letters. She, she couldn't bring her. And I mean, and this again, goes back to old marriage and, and the dynamic within a married couple. She couldn't bring herself to ask for money on the phone. So she would write him letters uh, saying that, Oh, this happened and and they're, they're saying this is how much it, it will cost never directly acting in for money and so yeah. forth but just saying that there's a need for money so so people will be, will be uh treated with this curious sight of the president of the united states going to western union to wire money back to to mrs uh mrs truman, mrs. truman yeah. and, and even uh even with like uh mamie eisenhower and so forth right we begin to see uh, a more public role for the vice president but really um and 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 it was, it was just a stroke of genius, and you you have to give it to Jack Kennedy for being able to use his family in a way that uh, FDR used the radio. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy doing something as simple as remodeling the White House was in a, a stroke of like just presidential propaganda genius, right? Um, she she came in 
And it was this young sort of glamorous lady and so forth. And she's speaking all soft-like and so forth. And it really appealed to her generation. Uh, and then you contrast that, right, with Betty Ford just being, I mean, I mean, literally, you have to remember that Betty, Betty Ford was a Republican um, first lady. And she's talking about contraceptive rights. She's talking about alcoholism. I mean, like, you know, she's talking about her personal struggles. And you also have to remember that many people thought that her marriage to Gerald Ford would derail Gerald Ford's political career. You know, uh, she she was a divorced lady. And also with, um, uh, I'm forgetting Reagan's wife's name. Um, Nancy. Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan as well. Ronald and Nancy Reagan. They were both actors, right? Who, like, if you went back, like, it, it's a funny scene from Back to the Future where uh, where uh, Marty McFly says the Ronald actor? Reagan is the president. And exactly. You know, it's, it's, um, Who's a who's a good who's a, a an actor? Um, uh, the Rock. Exactly. You know. Well, the yeah, Rock he already. Said that's what I'm saying. President. Um, uh, who was? I mean, who? like, you know, going back into uh, Arnold. Arnold going back to 1980. A Terminator came came out right, and yeah. you say this guy can be governor of California one day to hear people laugh at you, right? Mm-hmm. And even with The Rock and so forth, maybe The Rock does become president in what 2032 or, or something yeah. like that. You know, give him a little time and stuff to wrap up those Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> but but The Rock being president, that will be a, a great shock, especially for somebody who grew up watching him rock bottom people or at the scorpion king or something right yeah. um but but reagan becomes president you know it's it's uh, it's another testament to the evolution of the american political system but also the evolution of like women's role in politics and the role of the first lady i mean um whether you like their policies or not and so forth they were able to connect and maintain that connection one of the things that always struck me right was uh, particularly with uh, with Nancy Reagan, was that she was always in these the television shows. Like if you go back to TV shows in the, the 80s, the late uh, the, the 80s in particular, and so forth. But they always had a very special episode, and you would often see Nancy uh, Reagan, particularly when they were talking about like hard issues like drug use or or uh, abuse or or any sort of so- or any sort of uh, um, ilk like that. She would be there. And she would be given the shoes directly be speaking to the American people. Um, we, uh, we, we sort of see that. Uh, we, we, we saw that um, sort of fall off with Barbara Bush. But people remember in the, in the 90s, you know, Hillary Clinton vehemently pushing for, for health care reform during Bill Clinton's uh, administration. And, um, and uh, it, it's really a case study in and of itself to see how um, she sort of became a hater or loved figure. Because of because of her actions then and so forth, um, some uh, historians who have covered it way better than I ever uh, I ever can, um, they've said that you know her her attitudes her her uh, her initial moves or overtures to people really sort of like set the stage for how they viewed her when she made her run in two thousand and eight and so forth, yeah, you know? or or twenty or twenty sixteen, yeah, um, and then and then you also contrast that with. The uh, the role that um, Laura Bush played, or or Michelle Obama played, and so forth in the national um, consciousness. I mean, um, you know, we we can see 
that they both had their own um their, their own like platform their own policies and, uh, and agendas and so forth that they pursued independent to to what the president pursued not in conflict or anything but just their own role and even now and so forth, i think there is an official office um uh an official executive office and so forth for the vice uh for the first lady and so forth and the second lady to where they can to where they have staffers underneath them and they oversee various little policies and and so forth i mean like it, people people make jokes about it and so forth and it really didn't live up to what it could have been but melania trump to be better you know if it, if it had been like you know fully funded and like fully pushed and so forth could have been something to really address you know bullying the bullying culture we have now in the united states um but even even that's like a milestone right yeah um you know what you got out a little bit earlier about steven um Thaddeus Stevens. Um, you know, I, I always thought it was interesting because we read the Stephen Douglas debates with Abraham Lincoln. We think Abraham Lincoln is this extreme progressive uh, rep radical Republican, and he's like the man who pushed through um, the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendment. You know, he, he, he was an abolitionist. And then you listen to, listen to the debates or you read the debates, and Stephen Douglas is very clearly uh, white supremacist talking about how the white man is above the, the black man and everything. And Abraham Lincoln is saying, no, everyone deserves political rights. Everyone deserves civil rights. And then he goes into talking about, but I'm not for, you know, interconnectedness. I'm, I'm still for yeah. basically segregation, basically saying that whites are still supreme. And you read that and you're like, this is our progressive president, our progressive 16th president, this white supremacist. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with Lincoln, too, right, is Lincoln represents something that I think people are losing track of. Like, so it's easy to get canceled Lincoln on that. Right. And not look at what Lincoln, um, what the Civil War taught Lincoln and what Lincoln wanted to do after the Civil War. Yeah. Like 1860. Um, November, uh, after November 1860, Lincoln was still that person from the Douglas debates. Um, what changed was the events that unfolded between 1860 and 1865, between uh, January 1st, 1861, and, um, you know, um, April, I think, April 11th, uh, yeah. 1865, you know, just before his assassination. When Lincoln became president, he very clearly stated, look, I'm only going to, and again, this is a reflection of what the uh, the federal government, what what we all thought were constitutionally um, permissible for the president and Congress to do. Lincoln said, the Constitution protects slavery. The state constitutions protect slavery. I cannot in any of, and there were 15 slave states, not, not just the 11 that went into Confederacy, but there were 15 of them. And Lincoln said, I can't touch it there. I can ask that you... Um, abolish it and, and, and free them and, and let them live uh, live good lives and so forth, but I can't force you to do it. What I can do is I can take action in the District of Columbia, of a federal territory. What I can do is I can bar it and outlaw it in the Western territories, you know? And, and that's what he said. And I mean, by, the, by, by, the, by that time, South Carolina was already gone. Uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Alabama was an interesting case as well because when, when you get into the South, right, it's not all flatlands, or anything, particularly in Alabama. Most people think that Alabama is like um, Kansas or something, where it's just flatlands and it's good for agriculture. No. Same thing with Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee is very rocky. Alabama is very rocky. And there was, a, there was a fierce argument 
in the Alabama state uh, state legislature over secession, and it barely passed. Alabama barely went uh, went in favor of secession. There were many people who, um, for one reason or another, were not were not economically invested in slavery, but they were socially invested in slavery because slavery, of course, made um, it made all African Americans inferior to uh, European Americans due to the nature that European Americans could not be enslaved. So you were always, you know, at least a tier above. You know, it created this this stratified hierarchy based on based on skin color. Um, Tennessee was another thing. You know, people people don't uh, remember this, but Andrew Johnson was an unrepentant racist. He he really uh, forestalled all efforts at reconstruction. He really tried to roll back every gain that African Americans gained during um, during Reconstruction. But he was also deeply anti-slavery. He was deeply anti-slavery because where he came from, and he was a man with no former schooling. You know, he was a former tailor who got fed up with seeing um, people in his community get um, ridden roughshod over by the wealthy slave owners and so forth, by, by people we call slavocrats. Those are people who had aristocratic tendencies and presented themselves as aristocrats due to their ownership of slaves and wealth that their slaves made for them. Um, and, and Lincoln took him on as, as vice president uh, in, the 18, in 1864, um, because he was anti-slavery and because he remained in the uh, in the United States, and and he represented uh, a segment of of um of a southern uh, slaveholding society that that we don't really talk about. You know, the people who were still racist but were anti-slavery, and it, that's that's a conversation in itself. Um, but but Lincoln. You know, throughout the course of the war, Lincoln evolved his position. At first, he thought that he could solve the situation by simply removing all the African-Americans. There, there was a, um, a plan to repatriate African-Americans to Haiti. Um, it's never talked about because it ended in dismal failure. It was called, um, they, they were sending them to Ilabak, um, Cow's Island. Um, it's right off uh, the uh, right off of uh, Port-au-Prince in and uh, in, um, in Haiti, and they they sent 500 people down there, and the plan was to use this as a social experiment to say, hey, we can we can get them all uh, transported out the country, and we can solve this issue once and for all. Again, a racist idea of creating a European American ethno state, but one that had good traction um, amongst policymakers. So Lincoln approves it. They send the people there and they don't hear anything back from the man organizing everything. So uh, a union ship is sent to investigate. The guy was supposed to build schools, homes, hospitals. He was supposed to, you know, set everything up for uh, a successful society. He got the money, drops off from the face of history. We never hear anything back from this guy. The disease uh, swept through there. Most of the people died. More than uh, three quarters of the of the original settlers uh, died there. Um, less than two hundred make it back to the United States. That idea firmly quashed. Um, and, and this is before the Emancipation Proclamations come in. Um, and so now Lincoln is thinking we can't we can't send them out. Uh, that that plan just backfired in my face. Let's talk about forcing them to end this war and negotiate some sort of uh, emancipation. So we issued a preliminary emancipation uh, proclamation. And this is before, uh, this was issued in late uh, 1862. And, uh, and he says, hey, 
surrender now, you can keep your slaves, and the t- and slavery are forever barred from the territories. You know, he's he's making this appeal to people in the um the, the uh, Confederate leadership. But I mean, but this is 1862. The Confederates are on a hot streak. You know, they they're winning the battles, and Robert E. Lee is planning his first invasion of of um of, of the of the free states. He's planning to invade. He can't go to Washington because Washington's the most heavily defended place on the planet at this point. But he can strike into Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia. Um, and it, uh, well, well he, was, he was branching out of Virginia. They were, they were oh, attacking yeah, him in yeah. Virginia. Um, but, but he can he can attack Pennsylvania and Maryland. And from there, you know, you can you can rip up Ohio or you can rip up New York. It's it's his it's his uh, it, it'll be his option. But he had to take Pennsylvania. Um, no one no one listened to the preliminary emancipation proclamation. So then the emancipation proclamation is issued. But again, neither of these really hold any water because. The because okay, so so there were uh, 15 slave states, 11 go with the Confederacy, four stayed in the Union. Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware all stay in the Union. The Emancipation Proclamation freed none of the slaves living in those four slave states. It freed the slaves um, of of active participants in the rebellion. So you could be in Georgia, uh, be a slave owner support the confederacy and when the union army showed up said hey i don't know those guys i told them not to do it i'm pro lincoln i love me some abe you know you could say all of that and still keep your slaves you know under the emancipated proclamation now um that situation never developed because the union armies hadn't penetrated into georgia at that point they they were still being rebuffed in Virginia. Robert E. Lee was still racking up victory there. Um, Ulysses S. Grant hadn't risen to prominence in the Western theater of the war, so none of these slaves are, are potentially freed by any of that. Um, you ratchet on beyond that to the point that Lincoln, um, he becomes great friends with, uh, with Frederick Douglass. And he and Douglass, uh, Douglass had this idea of, of um, recruiting African-Americans to actively fight in the war. Lincoln goes along with it. He helps push the idea. This is where you get um, units like the 54th Massachusetts, you know, coming into play. Um, Lincoln's push and his approval of it and so forth. So you begin to see Lincoln sort of move away from this. There's no equality. They can't do the things we do. To now he's arming black soldiers and he's floating the idea that black soldiers after the war be given the right to vote because they, they're living up to the ideas of citizenship and with they, they're embracing our principles of freedom and so forth and they're fighting for us in this war. Okay? Um, we move on from that to the problem of like contraband slaves in which um, slaves in, in slave communities, uh, they, they were reticent to move without any real assurances or protections. Whenever the Union Army showed up, slaves flocked to them. You know, they, they just they abandoned the plantation. They understood that the Union Army meant freedom. You know, it meant freedom from the last, freedom from all sorts of servitude and so forth. Um, we, we, uh, we, we, uh, contra- Congress passed an act freeing all, congr- all uh, contraband slaves, right? Um, what's his name? Um, Sherman. Sherman is beginning his march into into uh, the South, trying to break up the industrial capabilities of the South, um, uh, restricting all their access, all of uh, their ability to their ability to sing uh, the agricultural goods or even the manufactured goods. But but he can't move because he has this large 
large camp of, of former slaves that were runaway slaves with them. Sherman comes up with the idea of this. I'm going to give you 45, uh, 40 acres and a mule. This is where it comes from. Sherman issued a field order giving, uh, saying that he would give that to those people. And Sherman was, a, Sherman was another uh, person who disagreed with slavery, but he was pretty racist himself. Um, and it's it was it's always surprising for historians that Sherman did, did that that forty acres in a mule come from William Sherman, um, but Sherman does it, and Lincoln interferes with it, but he doesn't publicly say anything against it. And slowly, um, the idea that giving them uh, giving uh, the former slaves some sort of access to land to support themselves will be a good thing. It will be a good way to protect them from uh, falling back into the abuses of of the old slavercraft and so forth. Um, now, the, the crux of all this uh, really comes into the issue with Reconstruction and Lincoln's plan with this to quickly get those Southern states admitted and then start to, to pursue the policies. Lincoln wanted 10%, uh, and, and it's, it's called the 10% plan, but he wanted 10% of the voting population of, of uh, these 1860 states, of, of these states, to, to vote and approve a constitution abolishing slavery and accepting, you know, the fact that uh, African-Americans were, were now free and, and will be given uh, some sort of civil rights. Congress disagreed with that. Congress, uh, and at this point, Congress was controlled by the radical Republicans, and they were out for blood. Uh, the free states were out for blood. Um, they, they had endured many setbacks, militarily, financial, economic, and they've been mm -hmm. embarrassed on the world stage. You win a war, you want to punish the losers and so forth. They wanted a Carthaginian peace from the Confederates. Lincoln understood that, you know, that it couldn't really happen and that the best thing for everybody was for them to agree to this now and for us to settle all of these social issues as quickly and as quietly as possible. Lincoln's assassination uh, ended, it ended its involvement in Reconstruction, but Congress would eventually go with its 10% plan. All their, all their other like harsh measures would fail. They would go with a ten percent plan, and we, and we can only speculate on on what would have happened between eighteen sixty five and eighteen sixty eight. But we see Lincoln moving drastically, drastically to the left of his positions on slavery and race and the and the future role of African Americans yeah. in in the republic. Um, uh, we don't know how we don't know how far left he would have gone. Um, he was he was above all things a pragmatist, um, but but he had come I would say uh, a long way. You know, not I, I don't think that he would have been in favor of something like loving or anything like that. But definitely um, uh, the citizenship and the vote would have been things that he um, that 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 he would have supported. You know, the uh, um, he oversaw the Thirteenth Amendment's passage, but. Uh, he died just at the uh, the 14th and then the 15th were being were being contemplated. Well, man, we're almost two hours into this. Thank you so oh, much. Wow. I think that's a good way to end it. Yeah. Oh man. I, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun talking to you, man. It was, it was I learned a lot and it was always engaging the entire time. So thank you for coming on, man. It was a lot of fun. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, man. Um, Episode 56 with Teddy Payne. Man, that was almost two hours. Can you guys believe that? That man was so 
interesting and he was so engaged with his topic of history and history of the world especially ancient and u.s history it was a great episode i'd love to have him back on again guys remember to subscribe to me on your favorite streaming platform to stay up to date with the show and as always stay demanding <laughs>